Good afternoon, church family. Well, this afternoon we are continuing in our series on our church's commitments. And today we are looking at generosity. We want to be committed to being a people who are generous. Just last week, uh, our family was at a local Chinese restaurant when a scuffle broke out at the table right beside us. And it was an epic Asian auntie showdown. And from the snappy opening of purses and the furious thrusting of money into one particular auntie's face, my guess was that at some point in the meal, she had snuck off pretending to go to the bathroom and instead went over to the counter and paid for the meal. And things got so serious that it reached a point where one woman was trying to stuff 30 or $40 into this particular auntie's collar because she was so fiercely guarding her pockets. Isn't it funny that we can feel a strange kind of indebtedness when someone has been generous to us? And actually, because humans have a shadow side, we can be manipulative, exercising outward generosity to put people in our debt. And while this might sound gross to you, I'm certain that all of us have some version of a mental ledger, counting what we've done for people and what is owed to us. But because we are made in the image of God, we also have this capacity as humans to practice a kind of generosity that flows freely out of love for others. A kind of generosity that keeps no records. A kind of generosity that shows others what they are truly worth, even at great cost to ourselves. And as Christians, as a church, we want to grow in this kind of generosity, the generosity that springs out of knowing more and more just how loved we are in Christ. It's the kind of generosity that springs out of love for God and that overflows into love for others. And so to help us grow in this area, we'll look at today's text through three different lenses. What is owed to Simon? What is owed to the woman and what is owed to Jesus? Let's pray. Father, help us to see just how generous you truly are and particularly how generous you've been to us in Jesus. Open up the eyes of our hearts. Give us faith to believe in Jesus and to see him as he truly is and change our lives so that we might become a people who are generous for the glory of Jesus's name. Amen. Well, let's start with looking at Simon and what he's owed. So Luke chapter 7 verse 36 tells us that Simon was a Pharisee and that he had invited Jesus to dinner. Now, understanding the background of this meal will really help us to understand deeply what's going on here. So in the time of Jesus, meals were not just about the food, but actually they were all about social status, about position and honor. And the key principle of the time was, was reciprocity, this expectation that an invitation or a gift would somehow be repaid. And hosts were held to high expectations, not only to provide a good meal, but actually to preserve and increase the honor of their guests. And they would be honored as hosts if they were able to do that. Maybe you can relate. Perhaps you've been in a situation like this when you've had someone very important come and visit your household. And the expectation is that everyone looks their best and plays their part. 
And so Simon invites Jesus to dinner. And now the other important detail that Luke tells us in verse 36 is that Simon is a Pharisee. The Pharisees were this Jewish religious sect that believed that if Israel could just be as pure as God wanted them to be, then God would finally deliver his people from oppression and fulfill all of his promises to bless them. And so the Pharisees, they took ritual cleanliness and purity very seriously. They had laws upon laws, rules upon rules to avoid becoming religiously unclean. All because their hopes for a new society were tied up in the purity that following these rules brought. It's a bit like that awkward feeling when you sit down at a fancy restaurant and there's five forks, four spoons, three knives and two glasses and you don't know what to do. You don't know what to do with each utensil and you don't want to get it wrong and shame yourself. There are rules that need to be followed. And it was the same for the Pharisees. Only a person who could maintain the purity laws would be welcome at a Pharisee's table. And so looking at our situation today, at the very least, Simon seems to see Jesus as someone who is pure enough to share his table. And given that Jesus was a wandering, homeless teacher with a band of undignified riffraff for disciples, someone who was very different to Simon himself, given all these things, it seems that Simon's invitation is quite generous on the surface. And actually, as a church, we want to be generously welcome all kinds of people, regardless of how they appear. We want to be treating others with dignity and honour, especially to those who don't look like or who don't live like we do. And I think by and large, actually, as a church, we're quite welcoming, we're quite hospitable, and praise God for this. I'm always grateful to see that there's rarely ever a person who stands alone each time we get together. But of course, we can always grow in this, right? And generously welcoming others isn't just a once-off thing that we do, but it's something that we must continue to do. The really interesting thing was that the Pharisees weren't just dedicated to living this way of purity for themselves, but they also called and taught and possibly even demanded that everyone else must do the same. And because Simon lived this way, I'm sure he believed that he was owed honour and respect and recognition. Even though his invitation looked generous on the surface, as it turns out, Simon was the kind of guy who believes that he is better than people who can't or won't live up to his standards. And we see this in his attitude towards the woman, right? He judges and he condemns her in his heart. He refuses even to see her, to acknowledge her presence, even while she's kneeling there, weeping at Jesus' feet. And so all of this should raise for us a question. Were Simon's motives for inviting Jesus generous and pure? Well, if we read the earlier chapters of Luke, we can see that Jesus' ministry at this stage was starting to gain traction. He was becoming an ancient Near East influencer. You know, the hottest thing since sliced unleavened bread. But notice Simon's actions and how they fail to honour his distinguished guest. Firstly, Simon doesn't offer to have Jesus' feet washed. Not by one of his servants, nor does he offer water for Jesus to wash his own feet. 
Now, after a long day of walking around in the dust and the dirt with open-toed sandals, I'm sure that Jesus' feet would have been, you know, moderately dirty. But for Simon, a person who valued cleanliness and purity, to withhold the opportunity for Jesus to be clean as he is, well, I think that brings deliberate shame upon Jesus. Let's look further. Simon doesn't greet Jesus with a kiss, a sign, a widespread sign of friendship and welcome. And so Simon refused to acknowledge Jesus as a friend, or at least as someone of equal standing to himself. And notice this too, that Simon doesn't put oil on Jesus' head. And this sign of anointing with oil was a sign of honour and respect, especially towards those in higher position than yourself. He withholds that from Jesus. And so looking at these three actions, or the lack thereof, we can see that in Simon's eyes, it seems, that Jesus is beneath him. While Simon's invitation might have seemed generous on the surface, his actions actually show us that his primary concern is his own honour rather than the honour of Jesus. And Simon points us to see that the greatest barrier to us becoming a people who will honour and value God and others above ourselves is selfishness. We can become people who care more about what is owed to us because of our performance rather than the well-being and dignity of others. And for many of us, this can easily happen. It can subtly happen because when we perform, when we do good things, we experience a sense of psychological justification, this feeling that we are better than someone else because of what we've done. And we can use actions that outwardly seem generous to selfishly put people in our debt and increase our own standing. And when we do this, we withhold dignity from other people and instead use them as stepping stones to elevate our own honour. And in our day and age, we can even do this from a distance. We can compare ourselves with other people online, making ourselves to feel superior. Self-righteousness built upon our performance is, at its worst, an attempt to put God in our debt. It's this attitude that says, God, because I've done this, you now owe me. And now I want you to do this for me. It can be as simple as hoping that since I haven't killed anyone or been unfaithful to my spouse or stolen or cheated anyone out of their money, that the balance of my life is at least 51% good. And therefore, God owes me a spot in heaven. Or maybe for others of us, it might look like the expectation that God ought to bless us in relation to how much money we give away, how we serve the poor, or how many hours we spend in scripture and in prayer. Simon's attitude actually reflects what Pete taught a few weeks ago. It's this classic over-functioning to position ourselves to be owed something. But what happens when seeking your own honour means that you manipulate and use people as a means to an end, doing something that's shameful even in your own eyes. And what happens when your best efforts aren't even good enough? Where does that leave you? What does that make you? Seeing Simon forces us to confront the ways in which we seek to honour ourselves above others, even God. 
And friends, unless we can be free from selfishness, we will never be free to be truly generous. But let's look at the other end of the social ladder. Let's look at the woman who we get introduced to in verse 37. In verse 37, we are told that she is renowned for living a sinful life. Perhaps she had made a string of bad life choices, or maybe she had been so abused and discarded by a society where women had little standing or agency that the only lifestyle available to her was one that was considered sinful. And so let's ask, what was owed to this woman? What did she deserve? Well, we see her society's answer in Simon's attitude toward her. She deserved shame. Her sinfulness disqualified her from being a person deserving of any sort of worth or dignity or honour. She wasn't even worth looking at in Simon's eyes. But it's also obvious to us as we read this text that she's had a radical encounter with Jesus, where she's received the forgiveness of God through him. And this woman is so grateful for Jesus' forgiveness and the freedom that she's found in him that she risks even more shame just to give Jesus the honour that he is due. This encounter with Jesus has reoriented her entire life. Let's imagine the scene in our minds. As everyone is there in this room, reclining, grazing away, chatting over dinner, in walks a woman, almost tiptoeing through the doorway. And the very moment she sees Jesus, she begins weeping uncontrollably. And sobbing, she positions herself behind Jesus' feet as he lies there on the couch. And he can only just see her out of the corner of his eye over his right shoulder. And her presence introduces a religious contagion like a virus, into this respectable group of people. Everyone knows about her sinful lifestyle. They've heard rumours about her story, about the things that she's had to do to get by. And to look at her in the eye is to see her as a fellow human being, someone whose presence at least demands recognition. And so everyone at the party avoids eye contact. They say nothing. And they watch on as her tears fall on Jesus' feet. And then she lets down her hair and begins to wipe his feet with her hair, kissing them as she weeps. She opens a jar of perfume worth a year's wages and pours it out on his feet. And everyone in the room is stunned, shocked, wondering if anybody is going to break the silence and say something. And the aroma of the perfume, it fills the room. It's really floral. It's really strong, almost as strong as the tension in the room. Now, if you're sitting there and you feel awkward, then good. That's what Luke, the author, wants us to feel. Because there is nothing about this situation that is socially normal or acceptable, whether we're talking in the first century or the 21st century. And to everyone looking on at dinner that night, this woman's actions reinforced her shamefulness. Again, look at Simon's internal dialogue in verse 39. What is this woman to him? She's a sinner. 
and her actions in the eyes of the dinner guests would have only deserved and heaped upon her more shame. She was embarrassingly emotional. She was repeatedly kissing Jesus' dirty, unwashed feet, and she foolishly wasted perfume worth a year's wages on one of the most dishonorable parts of Jesus' body. But she didn't seem to care. Shame is feeling bad about who we are, and in this moment, this woman was shameless. How is it that she was able to overcome a lifetime of shame and be filled with enough courage to honour Jesus in such a generous and extravagant way? See, the woman points us to see that we need to find a way to be free from the shame of sin so that we can become a people who honour Jesus and others generously and without reservation. And so it's here that we must turn to look at Jesus and consider what he is owed, what he deserves. If you look, there are three titles of Jesus that are brought up for us in this text. Um, Two are explicit and one is implied. In verse 40, Simon calls Jesus teacher. See, as a teacher, Jesus at least deserves to be listened to. In verse 39, Simon thinks to himself that if Jesus were a prophet... He would know what was going on. And as the prophet of God, Jesus and his words are deserving of obedience. But here Jesus reveals an even greater, truer identity in the later verses. See, after Jesus declares the woman forgiven, in verse 48, all the guests are left stunned, asking amongst themselves, Who is this that even forgives sin? And just two chapters earlier in the narrative, the Pharisees had been outraged when Jesus claimed to forgive a paralyzed man's sins before he healed him. They turn to each other in that moment in chapter 5 and they say, who can forgive sins but God alone? And if Jesus truly has the authority and the power to forgive sin, then as the Pharisees' own words confess, he must be God. And if Jesus is truly God, then he deserves the place of highest honour in every place for all of time. You know, one way the Bible describes sin, um, actually, is with the image of debt. See, sin is a debt that we owe. And we see it here in Jesus' parable with the moneylender and the debtors. We also hear it in the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6 when Jesus teaches his disciples to pray. What does he say? Father, forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. Jackson uh, Wu, a Chinese missiologist and theologian, points out that there are a number of ways in which we can incur debts, right? Um, We can incur debt when we borrow money to meet a need or a want. Uh, We incur a debt when we damage a person's property or reputation. Uh, But we also owe a debt of honour based on a person's status or their character. We also owe a debt of obedience and allegiance to authorities that are above us, that are greater than us. And so looking at the woman, um, whatever her sin was, it meant that her life was quite obviously sinful. She behaved in patterns that were inconsistent with God's holy standard and righteous character. And so her inability to live obediently to God and his moral standards made her a debtor to sin. But what Simon 
doesn't realize, and frankly, what many of us who think too highly of ourselves fail to realize, is that he too was a debtor to sin. You see, trying to put God in our debt through religious performance, in effect, says to God that we think that we are greater than him. We know better. It says that he ought to serve our wishes based on what we've done. And this is utterly dishonoring of God, who is Lord and King and Creator of all. And just as Simon dishonored Jesus, we fail to serve God. We fail to welcome him and worship him as we should. Often because we think too highly of ourselves and not highly enough of him. And when we do this, we tarnish God's good reputation. We mar his name in his world. And the honor and the allegiance and the obedience that we owe him because of who he is, is left unfulfilled. We are debtors to sin. And this, I think, in large part, is the great challenge of the church in the West. Jesus' name is despised in large part as a result of the shameful sinfulness who claim to represent God. Maybe you're here and listening today and you identify with the woman. You're conscious of your sinfulness and you feel unable to change. Or maybe you're more like Simon Someone who relies on their good works to reassure themselves of their good position. But notice that according to Jesus, both are in desperate need. Look with me to verses 41 and 42. Jesus says this, Two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. But neither of them had the money to pay him back. So he forgave the debts of both. You see, here in Jesus' words, the exact amount themselves are less important than the point that Jesus is trying to make. Simon might think that he's in a better position relative to a terrible sinner like this woman. But both he and this woman owed debts that neither of them could ever hope to pay. And someone might outwardly seem 10 or 100 times worse than you, but because of the pervasiveness of sin and our failure to honor God as we should, this means that before God, actually, we are all desperately bankrupt, completely unable to repay the debt that we owe. God is holy and perfect, deserving of perfect honor, utmost allegiance and complete obedience. But friends, we fail to honor him as we should. We fail to live up to his holy standards. We, like this woman, get caught in patterns and cycles of sin. And sometimes when we realize the reality of our situation, we can give in to hopelessness. And like Simon, we fail to honor God as we should when our ultimate allegiance is to ourselves. And when we do this, we attempt to put God in our debt, doing the doing things so that he would owe us, shamefully dishonoring him as the king of all. And every debt, be it financial or relational, demands payment. How does God deal with the debt of our sin? God absorbs the cost of our debt upon himself. Look again to verse 42. Jesus says that neither of them could pay the moneylender back. And so he forgave the debts of both. 
The Apostle Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. What's Paul saying here? Well, he's saying that Jesus was the payment for our debt of sin. As the honourable Son of God, he honoured the Father perfectly. Perfect obedience, perfect allegiance. Everything we cannot do, he did. Everything we cannot be, he is. In the riches of his honour and obedience to God the Father, he gave himself over to the most shameful treatment. To be spat upon stripped naked, to die upon a cross, a death reserved for the absolute scum of society. In verses 47 to 49, the word translated for us as forgive is this Greek word, athemi, and it implies a sense of release or freedom from debt. See, Jesus took upon himself the shame, the debt that we deserve because of sin, and instead gives us the credit, he gives us the honor that is rightfully his because of his perfection. He was shamed utterly so that we could be honored eternally by God. And this is how Jesus pays the debt for our sin. He bears the cost upon himself and graciously, generously gives the riches of his perfect honor to us. And this is what the woman experienced. By faith in Jesus, she received forgiveness for her sin. All of her debts before God wiped clean because of him. She was released from under the burden of her debt, set free from the chains that bound her, free to honor Jesus without reservation or shame. But notice too that Jesus' attitude toward the woman isn't just one that says, oh, I've cleared your debts, now you owe me. He also doesn't say to her, woman, you are forgiven, now do better. No, what Jesus does in this moment is he reinterprets her life and her story from one of shame and dishonor into one of honor and dignity. After Jesus tells the parable in verse 44, he turns his gaze to the woman and then he asks Simon, Simon, do you see this woman? What's Jesus doing here? He is humanizing her. He is affirming her as someone who deserves worth and dignity and honor. In a world that has heaped only shame upon her, Jesus demands that this society see her for the new person that she is, a new creation in Christ. He holds her up, actually, as someone who is honorable, someone to be emulated, an exemplar of the kind of love that comes out of saving faith, the kind of love that honors God, the kind of life that puts self-righteous people like Simon to shame. And in all of this, what is the rightful response to God's generous grace in Jesus? It's love. It's the kind of love that doesn't just say, I love you, but the kind of love that shows it in radical, uncomfortable, generous ways. So the woman gives generously and without reservation, filled with worship and love for Jesus, out of the grace that she's been given. And family, 
the extent to which we realize how gracious and generous God has been to us will be the extent to which we will joyfully worship God through generous words and actions. The woman loved out of the grace that she had been given and God wants us to do the same. Here's a statement of what we want to commit to as a church family. Let me read it for us. God's rightful rule over all parts of our lives and his extraordinary generosity in giving himself in the person of Jesus is the impetus and image for our generosity. And this is reflected in the way we sacrificially share our money, time, resources, our needs, hurts, successes and stories, both within our local church community and with the non-Christians in our lives. We are committed to thankfully receiving God's gifts and joyfully imitating God's generosity with everything he's blessed us with. Family, our generosity will only be honouring to God if it's in the context of love-saturated worship in response to His grace. And what matters more than how much money we give is that we grow in understanding and experiencing God's love for us and then loving Him in return. The pragmatics of generosity are far less important than the heart that motivates it. We will only give as much as we believe that we have been given. But if God really did pay our debt of sin by grace, if Jesus was utterly shamed so that we could be eternally honoured, if actually everything in our lives is truly a gift of grace, then we can forgive one another. We can provide for each other's needs. We can listen without needing to be heard. We can do good without needing recognition. We can give our time without keeping a ledger. We can be vulnerable with our failings. We can sit beside one another in suffering. And we can celebrate together. Because the riches of being loved by God in Christ and loving Him in response will never run dry.